Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I did not do a new in books look-see today. I'm sorry, except for my guest who's on, whose new book is called Absolver Paris. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, I want to remind you that we have a book review page on Facebook, the book review crew. And... um, They interview in all genres. I think you'll enjoy reading it. Um, My guest today has been on my show before. Um, He was here when his first Absolver book was was just published. Um, Gavin Reese is a former law enforcement officer who um, has just done an incredible writing job. He has a couple different series going on, so um, we're going to talk about that. He... um, he tried to join the military, but had a very bad injury and wasn't able to. So he went ahead and joined law enforcement and was there for a long, long time doing kind of a jack of all trades type of work, including um, high risk police operations, street level narcotics, combat medical care, drug trafficking, organized crime, SWAT, human um, smuggling, all kinds of things, including talking to crime survivors and victims. He saved domestic abuse victims from their assailants. He's taken down child rapists, murderers, and human traffickers. Um, He's had the honor of protecting royalty and political figures of all specters um, on both sides of the aisle. He's He's trained by a variety of special forces operators, as well as those who train him. Uh, Several of his friends and colleagues were murdered or killed, which is a very high probability in law enforcement. And he's occasionally been tasked to pursue those responsible. It is my pleasure and my honor to welcome a new, my new colleague to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, Gavin Reese, the host of Writers on the Beat. Gavin, welcome back. Thank you so much, ma'am. I, I greatly appreciate uh, the, the humbling and flattering introduction. I, I think I should have you introduce me everywhere. Okay, I can do that for you. And I'll <laughs> just send you the bill and let you know how much it's going to be, okay? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I pay my friendship fees on time. There you go. See, and there, there's something wrong with that that description. Friendship fees, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Congra- congratulations on the release of your new book, um, the St. Michael Thriller series, uh, The Absolver Paris. Um, you know, it is interesting to me because it. Is it Paris? Yeah, it's Paris, right? Yeah, not not yes. Vienna. We already yes. released Vienna, and I talked to you about yes. Rome. So okay, so um, the, one of the things that I find interesting is that you're bringing back a genre that hasn't been talked about in a long time, and that's thrillers in theology, the church and crime, and I'm fascinated by that. What made you choose that genre to write in? Well, it's uh. I, for me, I, I think it's a kind of an interesting backstory. My my wife and I uh, were sitting around the kitchen table um, uh, like exactly a year ago, and we were talking about um, I can't remember if the impetus was a a news story or um, something else that we had read that day, but we were talking about the idea of um, kind of moral violence and about. Um, it, it might have even started with the, kind of the current uh, ongoing sex scandal in, in the in the church, um, but about um, the burden kind of the priests must feel 
knowing all the things that they know and not being able to do anything with it because of the their their uh, the, the sacraments and and their their oath their vows um, to keep all of the confessions confidential and uh, kind of in the process of this conversation we came up with in probably about an hour um, the idea of this series that would center around a a Roman Catholic parish priest who had finally come to his breaking point, that he had um, serious internal conflict between the things that he had to listen to in confession from both victims and assailants, um, his inability to take direct action to save future victims from, from those same monsters, and that he also had a big internal conflict with a lot of the kind of Old Testament teachings about morality of violence and vengeance and wrestling, reconciling that with what uh, the church's, um, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church and the kind of the, the, the bylaws and the ideology of the Catholic Church, um, you know, kind of the, the turn-your-cheek philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so when we started, uh, when I started putting this, all this together, um, it turns out, uh, I always knew my wife was a big conspiracy theorist, but I didn't realize how bad a conspiracy theorist I was until we started <laughs> uh, looking into this. Researching it. it. You know, it, oh, yeah, and it, it turns out, I guess, about the only major conspiracy I totally don't believe in is that the moon landings were fake, but anything else I'm game for, you know. I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't believe in it. Um, yeah. So I started... Uh, as a, especially as, you know, having grown up Protestant, um, I started doing a lot of research into Catholicism and into the Catechism and, and into the Old Testament, which was much less covered in in my Bible churches growing up. And trying to uh, to to reconcile first if this was even, you know, a possible scenario for a priest to to become an assassin. Um, and to believe that you could save the souls of evil men by reconciling their sins, going through uh, what uh, the rest of us probably commonly know as last rites, and then immediately killing their mortal body before they could sin again and sully their soul. Um, And I think, from my biased opinion, that I I do think it is plausible. so it, uh, it it born this 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 whole series that really, for me, um, hopefully, gets people to kind of examine and wrestle with the idea of moral violence and vengeance and who who has a right to it and when is it uh, when is it okay? Interesting, and yet you have two other series that are totally different. You have the Enemy series, which I think there are two books too, but then you have the Alex Landon mm-hmm. case files. And I, I really like the Alex Landon case files for for the type of you know cases that he works on. It's gritty crime fiction, and mm-hmm. um, yes. and so I like those. Will you go back to Alex Landon at any point, or will you yeah, start so, something different? So I probably have um, no, no underestimate, but I, I probably have to varying degrees, about 15 to 20 books in the works at any one time. Um, wow. The, the, majority, the majority of those right now are in the Absolver series. Um, and, you know, a big question on, on that, obviously, is the long-term 
viability, right? I mean, how long will will readers want right. to hear about an assassin priest and, and want to hear the next story? But uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, Alex Landon, I think, is going to be one of the very next things to come up because um, there's there's a few arcs in that series um, that I think uh, readers have had to um, had to tolerate and suffer through with some some serious moral issues um, that Alex has had and some mm-hmm. police corruption issues that I, I think we would all like to see uh, wrapped up. So. I, I'm, that's going to be coming out very soon. Very good. You know, I, you, it just dawned on me that you said 15 books in Absolver and, and you're working on Alex Landon. Um, are you writing only one book at a time or are you skipping around, Gavin? Because that's an awful lot of writing and an awful lot of ideas already to have laid out for your future. So I actually um, didn't start doing that until – um, I guess when I started the uh, the Absolver Rome, and I, I started writing that one in earnest about last August, um, after the last Alex Landon came out, and I, I started using a, a new program called Shakespeare, um, and mm-hmm. I s- shamelessly put in a plug for them anywhere I can, anybody that asks. But the way that their software works, it, it allows me to very easily manage uh, multiple books um, within and without a series. At the same time, so for example, as I'm writing Rome, um, an idea would come up or I would want to make sure that a specific portion of an arc uh, occurred in the next book. So I could very easily just start notes on the next book um, and put that scene in. So when I say I've got 15 books in work, some of them are only a couple thousand words that are mostly notes and outline. Um, some mm-hmm. of them are about ten to fifteen thousand words that are are a little better sussed out. Wow, um, do, you know you've all, you also had the enemy series, so um, mm-hmm. w- which is domestic and foreign. Will you leave that one alone? Do you think there's someplace else for you to go with that series, or will you do standalones? Because it seems like you have a lot of ideas going on, and I know mm-hmm. since you started Writers on the Beat which we'll talk about in a minute, um, you have a lot more ideas bubbling around in your head because you've been going mano a mano with some of the best crime writers and police procedurals in the world. Yeah, um, so the, the Enemy series is the uh, exists in the same universe and timeline as, as the Alex Landon series. So it's mm-hmm. effectively the, the two Enemy stories focus on um, both an Enemy's a, a domestic terrorism investigation and then a, a foreign terrorist investigation, enemies foreign, enemies domestic. And those two books are more, um, actually more authentic uh, writings of what the life of a detective is. Um, they're much longer and more complicated um, than the case files, which are shorter series that focus on just a, a single case, a single investigation. And, I see. you know, they're, the case files are a little bit um, – they're, they're shorter stories. They're much more consumable. Um, and the Enemies series, in order to, to make them a little more authentic um, and, and fully three-dimensional, they each run about 500 pages. Um, so it's uh, a much much bigger investment in time for the, the readers than the others. But So the, the, the next book in that Alex Landon series will conclude that portion of um, both series. Ah, I see. 
Now, I, you also are a very prolific blogger. Um, your newsletter is really interesting. I, I don't recall if it comes out every week or every other week, but you always include a very interesting short story or about a particular case or a particular location. And I'm, I'm fascinated because you're, the photography, you know, your, your, your letter is, is put together so beautifully. It's wonderful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you talk about like the theft of the Mona Lisa, and then you talk about a serial killer and you talk about drowning and, you know, what it's like to train at the FBI Quantico and, and so on. Where in the world do you, where does all this, these words come from? Well, so I, I I can't take credit for all of that. My my um, my publishers, uh, Cyanide Publishing, um, oh. I split the the blog duties um, with uh, with them, and so ah. I would say that that about two thirds, um, maybe two thirds of the blog posts come from uh, from them and their content folks, and about uh, a third. Somewhere between a third and a half uh, come from come from me. Um, so usually wow. the the ones that I write tend to be the uh, the ones that are uh, a little bit grittier, um, and mm-hmm. uh, the ones that use more swear words are usually mine. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah, so some of the uh, yeah, a lot of the the historical pieces are, are things that that they've done that are tangentially related to either something I have uh, published with them or something that I have in process that's going to be coming out. Uh, um, so it's, uh, they, they, they are a fantastic partner on all that. Um, I want to just make a mention of this because I think it's really, really important that a portion of your proceeds are donated to charities that benefit law enforcement professionals. And, and I have to give you a shout out for that because um, I remember uh, when I worked for several police departments in Miami and um, there was the officers and families fund or something. I can't remember what exactly it was called mm-hmm. in Miami that um, if, if someone in our community was killed or injured, we, you know, everybody was collecting money. And I worked in a, one very large police department and then one in a very small police department. And um, that was really just a necessary part of what we did. Um, thank you very much for doing that. That's a really important thing that you're doing. And and if you want to know more about who um, Gavin is collecting for, you can go on his website at gavinreese.com forward slash donations. Um, it, it's really important for everyone to remember that despite what you hear in the news, law enforcement is your friend. If someone is breaking uh-huh. into your house, you're going to call 911. You may be getting your weapon ready, but you're calling 911 too. So, um, yes. says says Pam as the police car is slowly going yes. by my house. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, what have you been doing, Pam? <laughs> no, listen, I live with 500 other people. It was not only me. <laughs> yes, I live in a big development. Yeah. So, I want to talk to you about particularly the new book. Have you been to any of these places that you write about, Vienna, Rome, or Paris? I've I've been to uh, almost every place that I write about, um, in, including oh, those three. Um, yeah, I I started traveling to to Western Europe um, in 1994, and I've been fortunate enough through a 
series of circumstances and misadventures and things that I eventually have to disclose in my background packets, um, <laughs> of, uh, places that, that I've gone over there. But I, I, a lot of the uh, a lot of the places that feature in in those books, I've I've sat in those cathedrals um, or the cemeteries or those bars and um, and had a drink and. That was one of the things that, that so fascinated me about um, about going to Paris, um, even you know decades ago when you know writing was just uh, just kind of a pipe dream. But you know you can go to this this ancient city that's been you know in yep. place um, since you know uh, about 52 A.D. and you know you can sit in the in the same cafe where Voltaire wrote his philosophies and. You know, it's just such an impressive place from, you know, the, the romanticism of it. Um, and then you can, you know, be sworn out in, in French, and thankfully I don't speak French, so I don't know what they said. But, you know, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic place, and I'm, I'm really fortunate to have, to have been able to travel as extensively as I have. Well, I, I think it's called walking in your character's shoes, so good for you that you're able to do that. It lends a certain authentic uh, authentication to it, you know, mm-hmm. when you've been able to, to walk around and see it with your own eyes versus Google Maps or Google World or Google mm-hmm. Earth or something. Now, Google, I know, is a writer's friend, but there's nothing like boots on the ground to go ahead and, yeah. and take it in. I want to talk about your radio show, um, Writers on the Beat. It's uh, crime fighters and crime writers, or crime writers and crime fighters. Um, mm-hmm. When we spoke last, I thought, I thought you had such a great point of view. I asked you if I could develop a show for you. Are you having fun? Oh, it's it's been exceptional. Um, I, I'm very very fortunate that that we met and that uh, this has, has worked out so well. Hopefully for both of us, it's at least worked out really well for me. Um, of course, but it has. I I really really enjoy getting to, you know, bend the ear and get, you know, kind of uh, this unbelievable access to talk to folks um, who are truly experts in their field. And, you know, um, everyone has been really, really amazingly helpful and willing to give advice and counsel, not just to me as an author, but to, you know, the folks, uh, the aspiring <laughs> writers and authors who, who listen to the show um, about how they can work about uh, developing their craft and their career to the point that they, they become marketable um, or are able to write something just purely for intrinsic value. But it's been a really incredible experience. I'm, I'm very, very blessed. So um, who did you have the most fun with? Um, so uh, a, a couple of guys for very different reasons. But um, okay. my, my, my favorite... Um, favorite co-author interview so far has been Preston and Child. How could you um, not love them? Well, or the best. Oh my god, these guys yeah, those guys are hysterical. Um, it's like you, know, you, it's, you would it, think they were an old married couple, right? And they live that, that one exactly. of them lives here in yeah, one of them lives here in Florida, one lives up in New England. It's it's hysterical to listen to them. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what came to mind. We actually had a, a, a segment in that <laughs> in that in that interview where it turned uh, turned into a uh, into a marriage discussion between the two of them. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, it's it's just been uh, and you know even uh, you know speaking with with Ian Rankin was a, a really yeah. incredible experience. He's someone I very greatly admire as as a writer and as an author. Um, you know, it's it's just been really really incredible and all the 
uh, especially the the cops and former cops who've who've come on the show. There's, you know, um, you know, uh, I guess within our our inner circle, right? There's mm-hmm. uh, as as cops, the former cops. There's you know, there's a kind of an automatic um, respect um, mutually that that uh, exists as soon as we know you're really part of the club. But right. you know, there's just like any other profession, right? There's cops of, you know, all, all types. And so, you know, it almost universally, those interviews start out as, you know, kind of both of us seeing what type of cop the other one is. And then you, so far, fingers crossed, but universally by the end of it, I, I think I'm making a whole bunch of new friends. So I think you, know, you are it's, too. It's, uh, it's been pretty incredible. Well, I I loved your interview with Mark Cameron, but Mark Cameron's one of the coolest yes. guys on the planet anyway. And I loved yeah. your interview yeah. with, with Bruce Coffin, and he's one of the coolest guys on the planet. When I first met Bruce was at, I can't remember if it was Thriller Fest, or I think it was Thriller Fest. And he walked into the room where we were doing the live remote. And it's, Bruce is a tall, he's like a tree. He's so tall. And I, I, I just stopped everyone. I said, hold on a second. Here's the former law enforcement officer. And Bruce just burst out <laughs> laughing. He said, how did you know that? And I said, oh, just the way you carry yourself. You know, and he, he's just the nicest, kindest guy in the world. So I'm so glad you that you're connecting with all your fellow Leos. What's next on your agenda, yeah, Gavin? Yeah. Um, well, I, I should take a couple days off and get some rest. But um, <laughs> well. We'll we'll see what the what the time holds. My my the the project I'm I'm next need to work on um, is uh, um, probably a short prequel for the uh, the Absolver series, but I've already got that um, probably about halfway done. So that'll that'll be coming out at some point this summer, I think. But the the very next major work uh, on the table is going to be wrapping up the the Alex Landon series and. Um, I'm really, really excited to get that done because um, for anyone who's picked up the Absorber series, in the uh, I think it's in the foreword of each one of those books, I've specifically mentioned that the Absorber series exists in the same timeline and universe as the Alex Landon series. And right. so my long-term projection um, is going to be some really fantastic crossover work that's, I think, going to put our the characters, both of my main characters and and uh, the readers in some very, very questionable circumstances that I, I think we're all going to enjoy wrestling with. May I mention what you and your wife do as volunteers? Yes. Yeah. Well, how about you tell them then, since you said yes? Because <laughs> it's They're really important. No. <laughs> well, too yes. late now. Yes. Tell yeah. everyone what you do yeah, because this is for me on a personal level. This is so important. Um, having been a victim uh, of a a female-based crime, a, you know, a a woman-centered crime. <laughs> what you are doing to me makes. You, I mean, never mind your work in law enforcement and all, because you and I have talked about that before. I think mm-hmm. this qualifies you as a, a number one hero. Please tell everyone what you and your wife do. Well, I. I humbly think we're we're just folks who want to try to help out those who who are not in a position to help out themselves. But we're we're partnered with a couple different organizations. Uh, one of which um, is Shared Hope International, and uh, Shared Hope International um, works. Their their long term goal is to help end the market for sex trafficking for prostitution. 
um, through education, uh, through legislation, and um, through uh, through partnership with law enforcement. And what they're they're primarily working to to help prevent folks from getting into what's anecdotally referred to as the life, um, mm-hmm. uh, the life of a prostitute, the life of a pimp. Um, and so when you, you know, if you ever hear anyone in, in that context talk about, you know, they're, they can't get out of the life or, you know, the, it's, they're just in the life. That's generally what the, what they're talking about. And, um, long-term, uh, we're also, um, working on a partnership with an organization, uh, Refuge for Women. And this organization works on the back end of the, of the victim recovery process, um, much like other sorts of trauma or, or addiction issues. Generally, f- women who get into the life as, as prostitutes, um, there is no pretty woman scenario. They're almost right. universally kidnapped and, and coerced right. um, into that psychologically and physically. So uh, Refuge for Women works with women who have left the life um, generally, it takes seven or eight attempts for them to successfully do so, but once they leave, most of them go through at least a 30 to 90 day um, in or outpatient addiction and trauma recovery. Refuge for Women tries to pick them up at the end of that 30 to 90 days and bring them into a basically a safe house that's um, located somewhere else and help them over the next nine to 12 months um, develop the the skills, the confidence, um, and overcome a lot of the trauma and addiction issues that put them in that circumstance in the first place so that at the end of that, they can walk out the door with confidence, with job skills, with marketable talent that will allow them to reintegrate into normal society and have the best life possible going forward. I, I want to just state for the record, though, that um, – not all human traffickers and sex traffickers and pimps target women. Many of them target mm-hmm. young girls. And, um, and, and that's, that's something that will screw someone up for life. And so what you're doing yes. is, you know, you are doing the work of the angels. And I got to thank you for that. Um, before we go, I have a couple questions I'd like to ask you. Um, so, one, I have friends that say, I want to go and be a CSI. <laughs> and guess where they guess where they think they're getting they're they're gonna go to like the Metro Police Department in Miami and they're gonna see this really state of the art point your finger at screen that's gonna do all these analyses and in forty eight hours they've figured out the crime. What's the yes. reality, Gavin? <laughs> Because I know the Miami the Miami Crime Lab is 20 years behind in fingerprinting, except on homicide yes. cases. So I, I'm not sure what it's like the rest of the country. I have to assume it's every bit as bad. Yeah, I, I think you know at least speaking about you know the the, the circumstances here in Arizona, um, there's only a, a couple significant crime labs in the in the state. So they're doing the work of all the police departments over the state, and it is nothing like what you see on TV at, at all. It's uh, old, dingy brick buildings. If you went 
it, it's probably looks a lot more like a high school built in about 1947. Um, right. And, you know, the backlog is tremendous. Um, cases get triaged um, just like you would at an emergency room. So uh, I had a case that was a, a commercial burglary. A guy broke into a school. And um, I collected, is where I worked, we did a lot of our own CSI stuff in the field unless it was a major event. Um, right. So I collected blood samples, fingerprints, the latents, palm prints, got those shipped off. It was three and a half years for those to be analyzed. They did result in, in a, an arrest and a conviction for the burglary, but yeah, nothing gets solved in an hour, um, and it all costs money. Um, so right. police departments... They don't get to submit that stuff for free, and they don't get to submit everything. So the law enforcement, uh, the, the administration has to decide where they want to spend their money, what cases are important enough, um, what cases have a probability of a successful outcome, and which do we unfortunately have to just leave sitting in an evidence locker just in case something changes. Um, and, and the and business fact, of law enforcement is depressing. And, and the, the fact of the matter is that they're – when I worked in the small police department, one of the detectives was the one who took her fishing box, tackle box, that had her, mm -hmm. you know, fingerprint stuff and tape and everything yes. else in it. Because I used to go with her as the advocate. You know, I would go with her to scenes where, you know, somebody's house was broken into or whatever. Um, it's You don't go to school and do that and, you know, pop out and become this crime scene person like you see on television there's no abby no. like on ncis it just doesn't work like that you know <laughs> i mean no. you're going to either no. analyze fingerprints you're going to analyze something you know do something you don't do it all um the no. other thing i want to talk about is um <laughs> so i just had to bring that up because when people tell me that's what they want to do um i also want to talk about the idea that you can um, become a cop simply by just going to school and going to the academy without thinking that you are going to get background checked and psychologically mm -hmm. checked out and all. Will you tell a little bit about what it's like when you apply to a police department or a law enforcement agency? Um, it is, even, even having lived a life um, that has allowed me to be to be employed by a couple different agencies. Um, it is the most stressful thing I've probably ever gone through. Um, having every avenue of your life examined under a microscope by a, a, a committee of anonymous strangers, and the idea really is, of course, you're going to tell them everything you've ever done, ever thought of doing, or ever been within range of having occurred, whether the cops were called or not, um, and then having to submit to extensive background investigation where they work to confirm or dispel that. And so, of course, you know, I'm going to give them the references that I want them to talk to. They're going to come up with references on their own based on where I've lived, who I know, who, I, who my associates are, who their associates are, and they're going to talk to dozens of people when I've given them three names. So if I've lied about something, even before I get to the polygraph, the odds are really good they're going to know about it. Um, across the country, I, I think this is still accurate, but the last that I heard is that police departments are only able to hire about 1% of the applicants. Um, and there are a tremendous number of applicants who show up with 
drugs in their car to the testing, or they show up with felony convictions, or you know they they show up with a really sordid past and they're a psychological mess, but they have this distorted belief that if they can just become a cop and have that authority and that badge that they'll do enough good to make up for the things they've done in their life. And that, that's not at all how it works. Um, right. You know, right. the cops are, are not are not angels. They're not saints. They're not altar boys. We all have a past and a background that we don't necessarily like to talk about or would not want on a billboard. But, um, you know, we've been been uh, honest about what we've done. And right. generally, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect any – 15, 16-year-old kid to think was a, a fun idea at the time. At the so. time, right. They don't dunk you in the river and absolve you of all your sins, you know, <laughs> and then say, okay, we're we're putting no. you, giving you a badge and a uniform and a gun. The other thing yeah. is, yeah. in a in a one shift of work, how much of your work is paperwork? What percentage would you say are you oh. writing papers? <laughs> yeah, it's, well... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's oh, really significant. Offense and incident reports. Oh God. Oh yeah. One of my one of my academy instructors said the job was ninety eight percent paperwork and mundane and two percent sheer terror. Um yep. I, I think the, the, the numbers are a little bit off, but that's pretty close. And the yeah. the more the more unique or the more fun or the more interesting a case or investigation, the more you're gonna to have to write about it. And that's that's one of the things they left out of the recruiting video is that, um, you know, in, in, in my career, I, I literally wrote thousands of actual case reports. And, you know, each one of those reports was probably somewhere between five to eight pages, um, you know, with some of them being 25 pages. Um, some of them were eight paragraphs, but for the most part, it's, it's really extensive. So you spend at least half the shift writing, I would say. I think this is why this is why I think so many cops become writers because they've spent already half their life doing it and they've got mm-hmm. the case, you know, case background information because of the cases. Even if you're a beat cop, you still get some really interesting stuff and especially if you know yes. wacko town like I did in Miami, you know, where who knows what's going to happen there. But but yes. you know, or LA or something like that. But um, I'm glad you clarified those things. (laughs) And I'm also glad that, you know, I got a chance to talk to you again. Um, For listeners who just FYI, if you're going to be at Thriller Fest in New York City, um, Gavin is going to join me along with a couple other hosts up there. And we are having a live remote show from the floor of Thriller Fest, as I do every year. Gavin, thank you so much for being with me again on Authors on the Air. And I wish you all the best with the Absolver series and with the Landon series and with your show. Well, it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I always appreciate the invite, Pam. Thank you so much. And uh, Anytime yeah, you I, want. I thank you. Anytime you want. I want to thank listeners for being with me tonight, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm.